eye is lost. These were the words of John Muir. He wrote them to his mom as he lay in bed in Indianapolis, Indiana, recovering from a terrible injury. Three days earlier, on March 6th of 1867, John had been hard at work in a wagon wheel factory in the downtown part of Indianapolis. He was just another cog in the wheel of the Industrial Revolution. And on that particular day, John was using a metal file to tighten the stitches on a spinning belt on a machine. Well, the belt caught the file, ripped it out of John's hands, and flung it up into his right eye. The cornea was punctured, and an aqueous fluid began seeping out of his eye. The other workers in the factory heard him shout, My right eye is gone, closed forever on all God's beauty. John managed to walk home and put himself to bed, but within a few hours his left eye also began failing. Soon he was entirely blind. On this episode of The Sun Also Rises, we'll talk about how this injury not only changed the course of John Muir's life, but how it set in motion a chain of events that changed the course of the United States in a way that countless people have benefited from and still are benefiting from. So after this injury, the 28-year-old John Muir was, metaphorically and literally, in the darkest time of his life. When he wrote that letter to his mom, he did so blindly. The final sentence of the barely legible note said, quote, I've written at random and in the dark, but hope you will be able to read my meaning. After one of John's friends learned about the accident, he arranged for an oculist to come and take a look at him, and John was reassured that his left eye had just gone into a temporary sympathetic blindness and that after the nerve shock and the inflammation subsided, that it would recover. The doctor told him to stay confined to a darkened room for several weeks, and that his badly damaged right eye could also probably partially recover. To John Muir, this was a new lease on life. It was a major turning point. He felt reborn, and it caused him to rethink his priorities. His employer at the Wagon Wheel Factory offered him a big promotion. John was a a very gifted inventor and a highly skilled mechanic, so his employer wanted to keep him on. But John refused the promotion and resigned. He was done being a cog in the wheel of industry. He said that because of his injury, he, quote, saw the world and his purpose in a new light. Before this injury, John had loved nature, and he had loved examining and trying to understand the beauty of God's creation. But after the injury, and the time when he had been unsure if he would ever see again, John came to realize that the creation was of even more value and importance than he'd previously understood. John later wrote, quote, This affliction has driven me to the sweet fields. God has to nearly kill us sometimes to teach us lessons. And in some of his autobiographical notes, he later wrote, quote, I bade adieu to all my mechanical inventions and determined to devote the rest of my life to the study of the inventions of God. End quote. 
And that's what John Muir did. His injury happened in early March of 1867, and six months later, on September 1st, after his left eye was fully restored and his right eye had recovered a good deal, he set off for what would become his famous 1,000-mile walk to the Gulf. He wanted to make his way from Indiana to Florida's Gulf Coast. And here's what he wrote about his overall strategy. My plan was to simply push on in a general southward direction by the wildest, leafiest, and least trodden way I could find, promising the greatest extent of virgin forest. This was just two years after the U.S. Civil War had ended, and the United States was still suffering from some unrest and still coming to terms with all of the lives that had been lost and all of the destruction that the nation had suffered. There were bands of ex-guerrillas terrorizing people, a lot of former soldiers who had not been able to return to civilian life after the war, and the whole nation was still on edge. John tried to avoid dangerous people and to just focus on studying plants, but he wasn't always able to do it. He kept a journal during this trip. It was published after his death under the title A Thousand Mile Walk to the Gulf, and in his entry for September 10, 1867, John talks about an encounter he had shortly after crossing the border from Kentucky into Tennessee. He wrote, quote, I was overtaken by a young man on horseback who soon showed that he intended to rob me if he should find the job worthwhile. After he had inquired where I came from and where I was going, he offered to carry my bag. I told him that it was so light that I didn't feel it at all a burden, but he insisted and coaxed until I allowed him to carry it. As soon as he had gained possession, I noticed that he gradually increased his speed, evidently trying to get far enough ahead of me to examine the contents without being observed. At a turn of the road, when he thought he was out of sight, I caught him rummaging through my poor bag. Finding there only a comb, a brush, towel, soap, a change of underclothing, a copy of Robert Burns' poems, Milton's Paradise Lost, and a small New Testament. He waited for me, handed back my bag, and returned down the hill, saying that he'd forgotten something. End quote. So that was a close call there, but John's paucity of resources saved him in a way. And just as a side note, Muir mentions that he was carrying a copy of Robert Burns' poems, and Burns would have been of special interest to John Muir because they were both Scotsmen. Muir was born on Scotland's north coast near the Firth of Forth in a little city called Dunbar. He was the third of eight children, and when John was 11 years old, the family immigrated from Scotland to Wisconsin here in the U.S. Time doesn't permit much discussion of John's youth, but one fascinating detail is that on the Wisconsin farm, his father was extremely strict and didn't allow the children to spend any daylight hours on reading. Those were precious hours during which everyone had to be working the land, and John's father also didn't allow him to stay up later than the rest of the family. But when John was 15 or 16, he eventually convinced his dad to give him permission to wake up early in order to read and study. His dad gave him permission, but he didn't think John could do it, since they were always so tired from the manual labor of the day, and since none of them had ever even heard of an alarm clock. 
But John took care of that by designing and building his own alarm clock out of wood. It was basically a large wooden clock, and John attached one of its levers to one of the legs of his bed, uh, which he had made removable. And so at one o'clock in the morning, the lever would pull the leg out from under the bed. The bed would tip down and spill John onto the floor, waking him up. And this meant that he had five precious hours to read. He had five hours before 6 a.m. when everyone else woke up and when he would have to begin helping with the farm work. Here's what John wrote about this accomplishment. Quote, I had gained almost half a day, five hours to myself, five huge solid hours. I can hardly think of any other event in my life, any discovery I ever made that gave birth to joy so transportingly glorious as the possession of those five frosty hours. This time, these, these frosty hours, as he calls them there, were precious to John because he wasn't able to attend school during his teenage years. Actually, during the whole time that he'd been in Wisconsin, he'd not been able to enroll in school because the farm required so much time. So during these early mornings, John poured over any book he could get his hands on, and he taught himself many things. Actually, we can read a little more here from what he says about waking up so early. Muir says, quote, Nor did I think at all about the subject as to whether so little sleep might be in any way injurious. It was a grand triumph of willpower over cold and over common comfort. I simply felt that I was rich beyond anything I could have dreamed of or hoped for. I was far more than happy. Like Tim O'Shanter, I was glorious o'er all the hills of life victorious. So it's clear that John Muir really valued his time, and he didn't want to misspend any of it, even for something like sleep. That's an example most of us can learn quite a lot from. John deeply treasured reading and learning and designing, and thanks to what he called his early rising machine, he ended up maintaining that very early schedule for years. But to return to John Muir's 1,000-mile walk from Indiana to the Gulf of Mexico, this was in 1867, as I said, just two years after the Civil War had ended. And on one evening in September, he was staying with a blacksmith and his wife in the mountains of Tennessee. And while they were having dinner, the blacksmith found out what John was doing, you know, just walking through the forests, trying to study the botany and to categorize all the various plants and trees. And the blacksmith was not impressed. He said to John, quote, You look like a strong-minded man, and surely you're able to do something better than wander over the country and look at weeds and blossoms. These are hard times, and real work is required of every man that is able. Picking up blossoms doesn't seem to be a man's work at all in any kind of times. So John was a little taken aback by this, but he asked the blacksmith if he was a believer in the Bible. And the man said he was. So John responded, quote, Well, you know, Solomon was a strong-minded man, and he is generally believed to have been the very wisest man the world ever saw. And yet he considered it worthwhile to study plants. 
not only to go and pick them up as I'm doing, but to study them. And you know, we are told that he wrote a book about plants, not only of the great cedars of Lebanon, but of little bits of things growing in the cracks of the walls. And that reference is uh, to 1 Kings 4, verse 33. And then John Muir continued, saying to the blacksmith, quote, Therefore, you see that Solomon differed very much more from you than from me in this matter. I'll warrant you he had many a long ramble in the mountains of Judea, and had he been a Yankee, he would likely have visited every weed in the land. And again, do you not remember that Christ told his disciples to consider the lilies, how they grow, and compared their beauty with Solomon in all his glory? Now, whose advice am I to take? Christ says, consider the lilies. You say, don't consider them. End quote. So it sounds like John was probably well-practiced in defending his interest in botany to Bible readers. And it sounds to me like he came down pretty hard on this blacksmith that had taken him into his home. But John goes on to say that the blacksmith was not offended by it, and that he actually told John that he was right, and he acknowledged that the Bible does speak highly of taking a keen interest in nature. Well, John continued walking south, and a few days later, he came to the first mountain stream he had ever seen. And this was no small experience for John Muir. He wrote, quote, There's nothing more eloquent in nature than a mountain stream. And this is the first I ever saw. Its banks are luxuriantly peopled with rare and lovely flowers and overarching trees, making one of nature's coolest and most hospitable places. Every tree, every flower, every ripple and eddy of this lovely stream seemed solemnly to feel the presence of the great creator. I lingered in this sanctuary a long time, thanking the Lord with all my heart for his goodness in allowing me to enter and enjoy it. As John made his way to the state border, he climbed to the peak of a mountain from which he was able to see a great distance, apparently all the way into North Carolina and Georgia. And he wrote, quote, Oh, these forest gardens of our father, what perfection, what divinity in their architecture, what simplicity and mysterious complexity of detail. Who shall read the teachings of these sylvan pages, the glad brotherhood of rills that sing in the valleys? and all the happy creatures that dwell in them under the tender keeping of a father's care. So those kinds of passages reveal a tremendously deep admiration and reverence that John Muir had for God and his creation. And that was in large part because of the fear after his injury that he would never see any of it again. But the journal shows that John did make it all the way through Kentucky Tennessee, then Georgia, traveling about 25 miles a day on foot. And throughout this long journey, he most often slept out under the trees and stars. And he often went hungry for days on end. And he came into contact with dangerous men on multiple occasions. But he was deeply grateful throughout all of it. And finally, he made it into Florida and to the Gulf of Mexico. So that was a huge triumph for John Muir. And it ended up being the first of many epic journeys he took to continue devoting his life to what he had called the study of the inventions of God. He later walked from San Francisco to what is now Yosemite National Park. 
In Yosemite, he wrote of the deep emotions he felt there, saying, quote, It was like lying in a great solemn cathedral, far vaster and more beautiful than any built by the hand of man. Muir also solo climbed Mount Whitney and Mount Shasta. He traveled to Alaska, where he discovered Glacier Bay and Muir Glacier. And he went on many other of what he often called rambles throughout the United States. John clearly loved God's creation, but he was not content to just enjoy it for himself. He wanted to make sure that others could experience and benefit from it the way he had. And at this time, the U.S. was in the midst of precipitous change. In the 1800s, many Americans viewed the nation's vast wildernesses as dangerous, alien, uncivilized regions. They saw them as realms that should be tapped for their timber and other resources. They saw them as places that should eventually be conquered out of existence. The country was rapidly industrializing, so it needed to fuel all of that industry. Around the late 1800s, there was only a small handful of partially protected wildernesses in America. There was Hot Springs National Park in Arkansas, and there had also been a one-off act passed to protect parts of Yellowstone. But there was no established method for creating, protecting, and managing wilderness areas in perpetuity and vast swaths of land were being claimed each year by mining and logging. Things might have remained just that way were it not for John Muir. In the 1880s, he began to combine his literary skills with his love for nature by writing articles in favor of wilderness preservation and conservation. He launched a campaign to preserve Yosemite and its surroundings, and in the mid-1890s, Muir was part of a team that convinced President Grover Cleveland to reserve 21 million acres for public wilderness. But Cleveland's successor, William McKinley, ended up withholding this report from the public, and under pressure from corporate interests, McKinley and Congress passed a bill removing protective restrictions from reserves, and even encouraging them to be commercially developed. This news crushed John Muir, and he wrote two powerful articles in The Atlantic talking about the dangers of turning America into an industrial park. Public opposition to McKinley's bill grew and grew, in large part because of Muir's articles. And eventually, after having been passed in the Senate, this bill died in the House. While Muir kept on advocating to protect America's most beautiful wilderness lands, and soon McKinley left office and Theodore Roosevelt's presidency began. This was in 1901. Roosevelt ended up reading some of Muir's writings about America's forests being rapidly depleted, and he was quite interested in Muir's message. So early in his presidency, Roosevelt wrote Muir a personal letter asking him to take him through Yosemite. I'll just read one line from Roosevelt's letter that really captures its essence. It says, quote, I don't want anyone with me but you, and I want to drop politics absolutely for four days and just be out in the open with you. Well, John Muir was happy to oblige, and on May 15, 1903, Roosevelt and Muir met near the Mariposa Grove. The president's men laid down 40 thick wool blankets for him to sleep on and under, since it was quite cold. 
And then Roosevelt sent all of his men back to town. He said he wanted to enjoy this time in the wilderness with just John Muir. And that's what President Roosevelt did. For the next three days and nights, he and John camped and rode mules around the grizzly giant and the Sentinel Dome and then on into the Bridal Veil Meadow in Yosemite Valley. The whole time they talked. During campfire discussions, Muir had Roosevelt's undivided attention. He emphasized the need for Yosemite wilderness and other wilderness areas to be set aside and preserved for the American public to enjoy. Roosevelt was stirred by Muir's arguments. And Muir specifically talked about how vital it was that the California state grant of Yosemite Valley and the Mariposa Grove, which had been surrounded by Yosemite National Park a few years earlier, that it should be included in the national park. Well, this camping trip had a profound impact on Roosevelt's outlook and his specific political actions. Shortly after it, he was quoted as saying, There can be nothing in the world more beautiful than the Yosemite, the groves of the giant sequoias. Our people should see to it that they are preserved for their children and their children's children forever, with their majestic beauty all unmarred. A short time later, in June of 1906, Roosevelt signed the Yosemite Recession Bill, which places all those lands under federal protection. A little later in his presidency, Roosevelt signed five more national parks into existence, and 150 national forests, 55 national bird sanctuaries, and 18 national monuments. Altogether, Roosevelt set aside about 230 million acres of public land for all Americans and visitors to America to enjoy whenever they want to. Roosevelt also established the U.S. Forest Service to help look after all these national treasures. John Muir died in December of 1914, but his legacy lives on. His writings and his life's work stirred presidents, congressmen, and the American public to take action before it was too late. And anyone who's had the privilege of visiting Yosemite or Sequoia National Park or Kings Canyon or the Grand Canyon or Mount Rainier has John Muir to think. He had a direct role in the establishment of all those parks. And indirectly, because of Muir's profound influence on Theodore Roosevelt, we can thank him for almost all of America's millions of acres of national parks and forests and other protected lands. When John Muir was 28 years old and had recovered from what he had thought was permanent blindness, he said, This affliction has driven me to the sweet fields. God has to nearly kill us sometimes to teach us lessons. And so many Americans and others have indirectly benefited from John's being driven into the fields and from those lessons that he learned. Of course, it is possible to go overboard with adoring nature, uh, especially if the creation is exalted above its creator. But Psalm 95 says that appreciating God through his creation is appropriate. 
it says, quote, Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving, and make a joyful noise unto him with psalms. For the eternal is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the deep places of the earth. The strength of the hills is his also. The sea is his, and he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Back in 1985, Mr. Herbert W. Armstrong wrote his magnum opus, a book called Mystery of the Ages. And in one chapter, Mr. Armstrong discusses mankind's civilizations and just how people have so often failed to establish the kind of relationship with their environment and with God's creation that that psalm and other Bible passages describe. Mr. Armstrong wrote, quote, What has man done on the earth where God placed him? Man has made ugly, polluted, defiled, profaned everything his hands have touched. He has polluted the air, befouled the waters and the rivers, lakes and seas. He has deteriorated the land, denuded the forests thus altering rainfall and causing the expansion of deserts. Man has built cities and allowed them to deteriorate into slums, filth, and squalor. Man not only has ruined the earth he should have developed and improved, he has also destroyed his own health by wrong living and degraded and perverted his own spiritual character. End quote. If you don't have a copy of Mystery of the Ages, please go to thetrumpet.com and click on the Literature tab, And you can order one there at no charge. This book contains so much on so many topics, and it has answers that are not really available anywhere else. So it is a a deeply valuable and a potentially life-changing read. Well, that brings us to the end of The Sun Also Rises. We really appreciate your listening to the show today here on KPCG-FM. Our email address is tsar at kpcg.fm if you'd like to contact us. And we'll leave you today with one last poetic passage from John Muir. This grand show is eternal. It's always sunrise somewhere. The dew is never all dried at once. A shower is forever falling. Vapor is ever rising. Eternal sunrise, eternal sunset, eternal dawn and gloaming. On sea and continents and islands, each in its turn as the round earth rolls. (laughs) ¶¶